This is A Sound Purchase, a podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. Episode 18, Silverchair's 1999 release, Neon Ballroom. I was back in New Zealand about four years ago <laughs> and I heard tomorrow on the radio still, you know. My my first exposure to Silverchair, I had I rented a DVD from the library. Right. From the Wellington Town Library, and it was like um an MTV clips show of like their yeah. MTV performances. And there was a clip of Silverchair performing tomorrow. And I remember watching it. And my dad came into the room going, I flipping love this song. This song's <laughs> amazing. Who is this? And so it just kind of launched from there. And, you know, I've somewhat illegally downloaded <laughs> the discography of yeah. Silverchair when I was around that age. You know, I was I was a bit younger, so I came to the party a little bit later. And I just didn't, I never knew where to dive off for them. So they were kind of put on the back burner for me <laughs> until... You came along and I started listening to your podcast and it was like, God, these guys, like there is something to it because my only knowledge of Silverchair was obviously Daniel was a bit kind of right. mentally unstable and everybody, when Straight Lines was coming out, everybody's going like, <laughs> he's back, he's back. And that was that was kind of it, you know. Yeah. Okay, well then let's let's just crack into it. Jake, how do you, mate? I forget how it's supposed to go. So, yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Oh, you, you. Yeah, all right, fine. <laughs> Sorry, it's, Today, it's too we're... early, mate. I've not been this up, up yeah. this early since uh, since we worked since at Costa. Costa. You know, yeah. It's been like seven years. Yeah. Don't worry, that's that's definitely coming back up today. We're going to we're gonna talk all about our time at Costa. Oh, I look forward to it. Barista chat. Yeah, Costa's like a, like a Starbucks chain all across all the right. UK. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, like the Kiwi is working in <laughs> at the barista shop, you know. He went somewhere a bit more highbrow after that, I have to say. He didn't. Oh, I, I got into real highbrow coffee after that, yeah. I found my calling. <laughs> Today, we're heading back to Australasia to discuss a band of my youth, a quintessentially Aussie rock band. And in order to sway you, Jake, I have enlisted the help of Daniel to be in my corner. Daniel, how's it going, mate? I'm well, thank you. How about you guys? Super. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. thanks for getting up so you early. You made that sound like we haven't been talking for like 10 minutes already. <laughs> well, I never know how you're going to edit these things, so you have to make it sound... Uh... Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you run your own podcast, Daniel, called Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. Correct. Which is starting to pick up some real steam. Uh, was it last week so. you, were, you put out an episode interviewing Billy Martin of Good Charlotte? That's right. Yeah. It's probably a couple of weeks yeah. ago now, but yeah, I'm taking a couple of weeks off. Yeah. He reached out and just said, Hey, this is Billy from Good Charlotte. Um, if you want me on your <laughs> podcast, I'm happy to do it. I didn't even have to work for that one. The other guests have been a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more effort. Yeah. Well, you've spoken to one of the members of Silverchair, Ben. Yeah. As well. And I imagine Silverchair don't seem to be the kind of band that are really open to doing press all the time. So I imagine that was quite a bit of work. Yeah, it was. I got lucky because uh, he happened to be releasing some new music. And oh, okay. I mean, to be fair, they broke up a decade ago. So um, people coming out of the woodwork to ask them to talk about Silverchair is probably not their favorite thing to do. They're not, yeah. they're not, from what I can gather, none of the members are particularly nostalgic. But yeah, Ben got... <laughs> 
Ben happened to be releasing a new single and I happened to reach out at the right moment. So it all kind of worked that way. I'm not sure if it would work otherwise <laughs> if he hadn't been looking for some pre- from some press. But, um, yeah, I'm glad that it did happen. And did you get a response from the automated Lornay machine as well? Did you go through his website? No, I, I didn't even... No, actually, the way I got... So I had Nick Lornay who produced... Uh, two or two and a half of um, Silverchair's albums, who is a Brit as well, um, but he lived in Australia for many years and produced a lot of stuff for Nick Cave, Midnight Oil and Silverchair. Yeah, like the list goes on. Yeah, Neon Ballroom, though, was a turning point in the band's career. A metaphorical line in the sand. I think that's what you were saying on your episode, Daniel. I've, Sounds pretty I've good. So I yeah, had to stop listening to the episode because I <laughs> just started stealing all of your stuff, mate. <laughs> I promise I will listen to it because I'm immensely interested by <laughs> by everything that you're saying about these things. You've gone into such detail, but I yeah, I just kept stopping writing down what you were saying, stopping writing down what you what you were saying. But to put it into a modern context. And sorry, please don't cringe at this, but this was the band's wrecking ball, Miley Cyrus moment. You know what? I, I don't disagree with that. So yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah. Well, it, at least with wrecking with uh, that album, Bangers, she was trying to actively say, "This is who I am now," mm. and she was making a, a, a line in the sands on purpose. I don't know yeah. how like active that choice was for Silverchair, or if it's just what happened when Daniel wrote his next batch of songs, but there was, I think there was with Silverchair uh, something of a conscious effort to, um, you know, to change what they were doing or at least deepen it and mature it. So yeah, I think that's bang on. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. I think there's, there's such a sudden shift in the music and it's to be expected. I mean, there's a lot of bands that go through this, but there's such a sudden shift in the in the the quality of the sound in terms of the instruments that they're using and so on. Now, I had some sort of joke in there that they didn't actually want to shed their previous image, but we'll we'll forget about that. <laughs> Neon Ballroom was produced by none other than the legendary Nick Lornay, who we've mentioned already. Someone who's pretty much produced most of my childhood listening, and he just seems like an all-round awesome guy, which you've confirmed, Daniel. Yeah. If not, a little bit forward. I mean, you know, <laughs> he was asking for your number for WhatsApp. <laughs> Do you still have his number? Do you still flick him a few cheeky texts every now and then? No, I don't, actually. Maybe I should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you could go and cut some tape up for him or something like that, you know. Yeah. You could be his new uh, social media manager. I-, I haven't thought about asking, but maybe I should. He, yeah. he does pretty well himself. To be He's, fair, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, all I see at the moment is him posting like European holiday yeah. trips and I'm thinking, mate, we're in a bloody global pandemic. You shouldn't be going to like Spain and <laughs> stuff like that. Although I as I gather, California is probably one of the worst places in the on the planet. Yeah, that's true. I suppose where he yeah, if he's just packed up and, and gone to Greece for a couple of months, maybe that's slightly better than living where he is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so the band at the time were now 19 and 20 years old and Daniel Johns has said of the recording that the first two albums were written with music being second to something else like school and everything else that teenagers go through. My mind was on many things and music was just one of them. On this album, music was the only thing I was doing and the only thing that I needed to concentrate on. I approached it differently 
in that all songs are written as poetry. In three months, I wrote about 112 poems and I made a collage out of the poems and turned the words that meant the most to me into songs. Then I wrote the music around the words rather than writing the words around the music. Following the previous record, Freak Show, and touring that record, Daniel Johns had begun to experience deficiencies in his mental health. He became a recluse. He suffered from severe anxiety, depression, and even developed an eating disorder. And this is the kind of, this was one of my first experiences of kind of word to mouth silver chair. You know, you start to find out about a band, you start asking the people around you. And yeah, it was very much like, oh, Daniel, he's, he's a bit sick. You know, he's not quite there. So I always had that kind of, I don't know, that kind of sadness for him, if you will, thinking, you know, I hope he, I hope he's all right. Yeah, he the the then the the media at at such a young age, like they had the equivalent of the Daily Mail, sort of camped out at his school, taking photos of him, you know, going to class and selling that to the newspaper, you know, that kind of that kind of media intrusiveness at you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. There's a, there's a quote from Daniel that said, I think when they came back from their second US tour, and he said, we started this band all the same, like or the three members of the band, and then, but then going through the exact same experiences at the other end, we came out as different people. And I think, yeah, yeah. that that re- is reflected in how he dealt with the, the fame and the pressure from everything, you know, and the other two happened to be a little bit more laconic and larrikin-y and they sort of brushed it off as, um, oh, yeah, but Daniel took it a bit, well, bit more heavily. Yeah, that's kind of the Australian-New Zealand way, isn't it, yeah. where it's like the manly man, macho man sort of, I'm not going to let anybody see my weakness. Whereas yeah. Daniel, being an artist, was very much like he he couldn't take it in his stride. He really suffered. Yeah, and uh, he he got the most attention. He was a singer. He was really good looking, course, yeah. and he you know he the attention was on him. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's always going to be on the front man, really, yeah, isn't it? That's it. Rather than just the drummer. Yeah, yeah. I say that as as someone that plays the drums <laughs> sometimes. So. I guess I'm allowed to say that. At, yeah, at, like I say, at the time, I was too too young to understand the severity of this situation. All I understood was that Johns was quote-unquote damaged, and I took that in my stride, although I was beginning to find damage and weakness in people as kind of the the nice things about people, if that makes sense, and I was beginning to see through, like I've said, that ego of the, the facadely manly man you know, in New Zealand, it's very much you have to be a strong man, a strong rugby man. Otherwise, you're not going to make it in that society sort of thing. And I, I'm assuming it's something similar in Australia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially where they're from in Newcastle is Newcastle, which is an old mining town. It's very, uh, or especially at that time, it would have been very working class. You know, it's a city, but it's quite, it's still quite small and has that local town kind of feel. Well, I shouldn't say that I'm not from there, but I, you know, you you can imagine that kind of yeah working class background is kind of the not the best environment for Absolutely. for a sensitive artist. I, I only really know the Newcastle Knights. That's pretty much all I know about Newcastle. You'll you'll come to find that a lot of my life is dominated around rugby and rugby league, right? And so on, <laughs> but that's because I'm a, I'm a good New Zealand citizen, and like I say, it's the only way you get ahead in New Zealand. Um. 
I think it's important that we recognise these factors in the writing and recording of this album for, for two reasons. The dominant theme of chart music is success. We want to see our favourite artists experience successful lives because that is what we want for ourselves. And although the braggadocio can wear thin, we can only hear so much about going to the club and drinking name band drinks. So it's it's quite nice to actually have a band who were wildly popular actually start to look inwards. And we find that with a lot of bands, they start to do that. The more success they get, the further inward and more reclusive they become. As human beings, we we fantasize about the dream we, but we create, we sorry, we crave reality. The artists with longevity are the ones that bear it all for us. The William Blakes, Vincent Van Goghs, Georgia O'Keefe, Anne Sexton, Chet Baker, Marvin Gaye, or Marvin Gaye Estate, Jake, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse. Yeah, yeah, we're not big Please on the Marvin Gaye Estate in the over morning. here. That's sorry, mate. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it's Fuck also the important. Gaye estate. Sorry, I have to say it. Yeah, yeah. It's also important that we recognise that most of us search for fame and fortune as we believe it will plug a bit of a hole in our life. Although as we continuously see, and especially in the case of like Daniel, Daniel John's not not Daniel, <laughs> host of Silverchip Podcast, as we continuously see, that is hardly ever the solution to the problem. The fame only makes that hole bigger. Yeah. So, Yeah. I think it's I think it's important to recognize that and I think that is a bit of a theme across this album. Daniel's real life has really kind of manifested that theme into reality. But let's lighten things up. <laughs> I'd like to move into the game show segment. This game is true or false. If it is true, then you are going to hear this. So true. Funny how it seems. If it's false, you are going to hear this. I thought you'd like that one, Jake. And then you, Jake, you will be playing for Nigel Neal from Wanaka, New Zealand. Listener that's commented in for us. He wants to win some sound purchase swag. And Daniel, you will be playing from... Yeah. You'll be playing for Wayne Stevens from Auckland, New Zealand. Both New so Zealanders. Double Kiwis. Yeah. Right, okay, to, question number to, one. Hang fire, All right, hang let's go, Wayne. Okay, question number one. Remember, this is true or false. You just need to say true or false. An Australian baker from Sydney accidentally invented the delicious dessert known as the pavlova. Is this true or is this false? False. False. <laughs> straight away. Straight away. He knows it. Uh, well, uh, it uh, going on the confidence of that. Uh, yes, false. <laughs> <laughs> the answer was false. The pav was named after Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova, but the first known recipe of the dessert appeared in a New Zealand cookbook in 1929. And Jake, you you're not to know this, but this is a point of contention in the in the antipodes. Um, it, <laughs> oh, these all are Daniel. These all are. You can trust me but on I, that. Yeah, fantastic. I spent a long time researching some of these. <laughs> some of them I just knew because obviously it's like every every year or so when news starts drying up, 
the the journalists start bringing these old stories yeah. back out. Okay, question number two. Friend of the show, Russell Crowe, is a born and bred Aussie. False. Jake likes to think about these things. <laughs> I, I do, I do. Uh, I'm not... I could cheat. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, uh, I... I can't just agree with you every time. That would be too too easy. So I'm, I'm going to say true. The answer, of course, was false. Crow was born in Wellington, but he did move back and forth across the country as he spent majority of his childhood in Australia, then came back for secondary school in Auckland. But famously, he's been denied Australian citizen citizenship twice despite being consistently named in like the top 50 most powerful Australians or something. No, I didn't know that. Has he, is, he is currently a Australian citizen though, surely, or not? Not as far as my research tells me. Well, that could be true yeah. actually, because I don't know if they're, you're allowed to have dual Australian New Zealand citizenship because there was a scandal a couple of years ago in Australia that – uh, where a whole lot of politicians didn't realise they were dual citizens oh. of either the UK or New Zealand or uh, and were like, oh, I didn't, because there's some countries where you're automatically a citizen of that country if your parents are, even if you're not yeah. born there or haven't been there. And it was a big scandal because, you know, the Australian constitution apparently says that you have to be an, an Australian citizen only to be Wasn't a politician. Wasn't the uh, deputy prime minister was the, yeah, the yeah. number one target? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's okay. We'll we'll claim him. I think or was he part of the one of the bad governments that have been kicked uh, yeah, out? Yeah, I, I wouldn't claim him. I think that was Barnaby Joyce, and yeah, I don't think you'd want to claim him. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've you guys have almost had as many prime ministers as the UK has in the in recent times. Oh yeah, it, I I can't remember what it is, but we've had we had like seven in ten years or something. At one point, at the yeah. in the previous Ow. decade, yeah, yeah, I was asked by a student the other day about uh, female prime ministers, and I said, "Oh no, Australia's got one." Thinking of um, was it Theresa Gillard, Ju- Julia Gillard, Julia Gillard? Sorry, and I was thinking, yeah, yeah, and then I was did a quick quick search, and then I saw, saw that she had ousted Kevin Rudd, but then Kevin Rudd ousted her. Yep, <laughs> and then there's been three guys since then yep. as well. It's, yep. oh, it's crazy over there. Yeah. Yeah, but we're going to talk a lot more politics now. It's it's an awesome segue, actually. Eccentric frontman and amateur dance enthusiast Peter Garrett famously disbanded his band Midnight Oil in order to become a politician. Is this true or false? True. I know the answer, but I'm only... I wanted to... Let Jake answer first, and also I'm not sure if he ever officially disbanded, but he did become a politician, so I'm going to say true. So true, funny how it seems. Yeah, no, the Midnight Oil did uh, officially break up at the end of their at the end of their run in the early 2000s. I think it was 2002, so that Peter Garrett could. Uh, run for election. He did actually, he'd already run for election in the 1980s with the Nuclear Disarmament Party in the 2000s, the late 2000s, that he was elected into the Australian government with the Labour Party. 
and he served as the Minister of the Environment, Heritage and the Arts before a cabinet reshuffle, which we've just been talking about, which saw him move to Minister of Education and Early Childhood and Youth. There's actually a Silverchair connection other than just them being in bands that uh, while Peter Garrett was a politician, Daniel Johns made a little bit of a joke about smoking weed with Peter Garrett for some reason on the radio and uh-huh. didn't realise that you can't say that at about a sitting politician. And uh, he got in, you know, they, even though it wasn't actually a true story in the end, but it was uh, something uh-huh. that Peter Garrett got a lot of heat for and, and, uh, Oh, God. Which I is mean, hilarious. He's, he's a he, brave man because he just had people quoting his own lyrics back to him in the cabinet, didn't he? Yeah, I believe there's, so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a supercut. Yeah. There's yeah. a supercut on YouTube of all of these politicians trying to debate him by just quoting his own lyrics back to him. Well, yeah, that yeah. was the kind of thing is that obviously to become a politician in the Labour Party, he had to compromise on some of the things that he probably believed internally. Uh, and mm. you know you're not you can't just go against your party, especially in the Labor Party. Uh, so yeah, yeah it, it was a bit of a you know that you had people calling him a sellout for even even daring to join uh, you know a centre left or you know central party like the Labor Party in Australia. Uh, but there's I've I've often said you know politicians shouldn't just be straight out of school. In fact, when we when we're talking about like cabinet ministers and so on you shouldn't actually need to be a sitting politician. It should be that your prime minister is elected and then say your minister of education should be a teacher or a head teacher or something that's pulled out of the school to be that minister of education. Because I mean, well, we've had four ministers of education in the last four years or so over here in the UK, and they're all doing pretty much as poor a job as the one before them. Yeah. Because none of them really have any experience in education, but mm. with Peter Garrett being the Minister of Arts and Environment, I mean, there isn't really a better qualified person on the planet. Okay, question number four. Iconic Biscuit, the Tim Tam, is an Australian institution. True or false? You might not know what a Tim Tam is, Jake. It's like a, a bourbon biscuit covered in chocolate. I feel like I've had a Tim Tam. Good. some point from some someone somewhere who has bought one back from somewhere. Oh, that might have been me. It may well have been you. Yeah. It, Did we do Tim Tam Slams? <laughs> no, we didn't do Tim Tam Oh, that's fine. So imagine your bourbon biscuit, right? But because it, it's covered in chocolate, it's almost, you, if you bite off both ends, it kind of becomes a straw. And you drink your tea through the Tim Tam. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Or alcohol, yeah. Huh? I can get behind that. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, true. True. Yeah, I, I'm going to say true as well. Unlike the dodgy origins of the Anzac biscuit, the Tim Tam is Aussie through and through, although also hugely, hugely popular in New Zealand. I was going to say I'm, okay. I've never heard of it being in a, a New Zealand thing, but I'm, uh, yeah, that could have been you know the Australian bias never never telling me that it's really from New Zealand. Oh no, that's okay. <laughs> have you ever been to New Zealand? No, no. Oh mate, should go. Well, not not, not right now. Not right now. Well, not actually, now. right now they're doing pretty well, but <laughs> we're trying to yeah. set up. Well, we're yeah. trying to set up a travel bubble with them 
In fact, there is one in some, in, in at least one of our states, I think, because we're the two countries that have sort of dealt with uh, COVID mm, yeah. uh, earlier Unproperly. and also, and also we're islands. So it's easier to control the, the flow of, you know. Well, yeah, my, my auntie moved to Brisbane for work in like January. Oh, wow. Or something and then got stuck there throughout the whole COVID thing. So it was like supposed to be that she was traveling back one one fortnight. My uncle was traveling over for a fortnight. They winded up just not seeing each other for mm, a month. Jeez. Yeah, it sucks. Anyway, enough of my family business. Question number five. This one is from an article called Food Australia and New Zealand Love to Bicker About. <laughs> the Flat White. Jake and I have had to make our fair share of flat whites in our barista days. The flat white is an Australian invention. Is this true or is this false? I see, I thought that was a, a Kiwi. I thought that was a New Zealand thing. But I can, I can easily see both countries trying to lay claim to it because it's a great drink. Um... <laughs> it's very different over here than what it was well, what I remember it to be in New Zealand. I, I find it's different every shop you go into. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, and that too, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, a lot of places do it. It's basically just a latte. Um, yeah. I'm going to have to say it. I'm going to have to say it's true, but I fully admit I that that probably is a little bit of patriotism talking. And and as a coffee lover, I'd like to think we we came up with it, but um, I don't have any any knowledge. <laughs> Okay. Jake? Where did you say it was made? Australia or New Zealand, sorry? Australia. Uh, I'm going to say it's false then. Okay. New Zealanders claim that it started in Wellington when a poor quality milk wouldn't froth properly and a cappuccino was created flat. However, a Sydney cafe claims that they were the first to put the flat white on the menu in 1985. For what it's worth... When Starbucks brought the flat white to the US in 2015, they called it an Australian drink. However, there is one thing that Australians and New Zealanders can agree on, is that Starbucks don't make proper flat whites. <laughs> it's a serious business, and I'm going to choose that it was claimed for New Zealand. <laughs> okay, well, chaps, should we have a listen to Neon Ballroom by Silverchair? Sure, Let's why not? do it. Yeah, cool.
Track number one, Emotion Sickness. Deliberately placed as the opener, apparently. A metaphorical jab at the purest old stuff was better, man fans, kind of like me. Clocking in at <laughs> 6.02, this is a lengthy, angsty mm. opener, which features quite lengthy instrumental breaks. Although, ironically, there's kind of like no chorus to this one. So no, not just, really. It leaves you hanging, doesn't it? Emotion Sickness is a huge song for Silverchair because, it, one, it is the first track deliberately because it's so different to what most people would have been expecting from the band. It, like, reintroduces yeah. them as a grown-up, mature-sounding band. I think it's a level up in songwriting, both musically and lyrically, for Daniel. It's a, if you wanted to show people, oh, this isn't the song, this isn't the band that uh, from tomorrow, you would play them that song. Even if you, yeah. even if it wasn't for you, you would at least get a sense that they've moved in a different direction. Mm. Absolutely, no, ab- absolutely. Alongside the tension-filled music, the lyrics play their part in unsettling the listener through clever structuring. The first verse is four lines long, two question and answer phrases, very common for a verse. The second verse is only three lines long, leaving one question and answer phrase incomplete torturing our brains because we've long been conditioned for symmetry. So it's, it's, it's clever that their first two verses combined are only seven lines long, as opposed to what we, what we crave is that last line, that eighth line. It just, it's very subtle. That's a good but point. It really good plays point. on my mind. Yeah. That's a really good point. I don't even know if I've noticed that. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. It's uh, that's something that was a big, big thing when I was at uni studying music. Danny, friend of the show, who's talked with us previously on the Ella and Louie episode, came home one day and was just talking to me about it for about an hour. She went to a masterclass with a, a lyric writer who was talking about odd lines versus even lines. So it's been imprinted in my mind. Yeah, and and probably the reason for that is that yeah, like you said earlier, Daniel wrote these lyrics as poetry or as bits and pieces of of uh you know he would literally cut them up into pieces the lines that he liked and then arrange them into song form so no they didn't necessarily have rhymes in the right places or even the same number of words or or lines in a in a verse yeah exactly this song features australian concert pianist david helfgott Yep. I, I believe I'm saying that right. Yep. He was the subject of the film Shine with Jeffrey Rush. That's it. Daniel, where do you think the piano is at its most interesting on this track? That's a, that's a softball from your episode. There's a really cool dissonant part in the, and this is just how the part was written for David Helfgott because he, he uh, I believe he became schizophrenic 
because he was given electroshock therapy as a dumb way to treat his mental illness. And he's, you know, sort of a very erratic kind of player. Then it's this really cool part where it kind of goes against the, it's not, I don't know if it's actually dissonant, but it sounds dissonant against what's happening in the rest of the, in the rest of the music. After the kind of refrain or post-chorus, the distorted guitar tone is really, really amazing. The song was written, Jake, in open C-sharp minor. Yeah. Oh, That's something I've never written in. <laughs> I've always been afraid to probably tune my guitar like that. C-sharp minor, that's a... Uh... Yeah. Uh, a spicy choice that is a very spicy yeah. choice well, and I mean, daniel you described this song as a bit of a film score which i totally believe in because i've been doing film music with kids at school over the past six weeks right so with the orchestral backing and the kind of spookiness and dissonance it certainly sounds less like a rock band and more appropriate for the backing of a film i completely agree with that Absolutely. yeah and i think one, yeah. Yeah. one of the few notes i've got is in very big letters it just says very cinematic yeah, yeah. no no that's fine jake yeah, yeah. But, uh, i'm supposed no, to be no. swaying you with the power of daniel see <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i think um because daniel john's apparently wasn't listening to much music at the time he was writing them, but he was watching a lot of movies. And apparently to this day, he likes to write songs by looking at something rather than listening to something um, for inspiration. Yeah. And then this was probably, you know, the the first or best example of that. That's what we call the Wu-Tang approach. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I only found out yesterday listening to a podcast with RZA that, Wu-Tang is actually a mountain, like there is a legitimate Wu-Tang mountain mm. that you can go and climb. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had no idea about I that. I don't think that's what they're named after, though. I think they're, they're named after the I film, think it is. Shaolin versus Wu-Tang. Which yeah, was but a, the, what are the Wu-Tang named after? Well, oh, no, no, in the, the monks are probably named after that, but I mean Wu-Tang clan. Yeah. They won't be named Wait. after them. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So, Daniel, you also make a great point that there is a huge sense of space in the playing of the band to accommodate the piano and orchestra. That's something that Jake and I often look for in music is that sense of space. We don't like things to be too chaotic or kind of crammed up full of music. We've said it on, on, on this podcast before, the hardest thing to do with an instrument in your hand is not play it. Yeah. And the band are doing that actually quite well. Um, Daniel Johns, for instance, I mean, he does a couple of solos on this record but he barely does any solos. And I know that's probably more to do with his anxiety and so on. But for me, it shows incredible restraint in, especially in songwriting. A lot of the songs I write, it's just like, oh yeah, well, 16 bars there, we'll do a guitar solo. That'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a great activity. I'd love to do in my classroom to trigger the students to make them really angry. We watch a performance of John Cage's four minutes, 33, <laughs> Yeah. which for those that are unfamiliar is a piece composed of, complete silence genius really in the sense of it makes you listen to the sounds around you but also that each performance will be entirely authentic and impossible to replicate anyway students hate the performance because their <laughs> sense of music is to be bombarded with sound they need sound all the time they need changing sound they can't listen to a song at the moment where it just stays the same for like 16 bars 
They need a change. Every four bars, they need something, a bit of percussion or anything. Needless to say, I hand them out xylophones, ukuleles, guitars, drums, rain sticks, etc. to the students and ask them to sit there for four minutes and 33 without making any sound. It's like the best time of my year <laughs> is us trying to do this. I'm yet to hear four minutes, 33 of silence. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, I think this was the first album where Daniel had other instruments in mind. So he's like, well, I don't need to fill all this space with me. Uh, because I know there's going to be piano, I know there's going to be strings. Even if he didn't know exactly what was going to be played, he knew to make it simpler, which is something the whole album has in common, is that it sounds really complicated, but a lot of it is quite simple, and that's sort of by design. And I think he got the um, like the open yeah. um, C-sharp minor tuning. He's a big uh, Led Zeppelin fan. I think Jimmy Page was sort of a big influence in that sense. On the first two albums, you've got drop D yeah. and E standard, and then on this album, suddenly he's got open chord tunings and and whatnot. Well, I see. I the reason I chose this to convince Jake is because I know that as soon as there's drop D, Jake's into it. So, oh, no, <laughs> well, there's still no. some. There's well still some drop, drop D. D now. I'm a oh tune my sorry Jake. You know yeah. me. I tune. I use a weird tuning. That's good guitar talk for a moment, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, guitar chat. Uh, whenever I, you know the tuning I use. I use um, C A. DGBE, no, CF, sorry, right. CF. Oh, CF. Is it F? Yeah, CF, DGBE, because basically, I, I'll tell you why I use that tuning. <laughs> I was playing along with the B-52's first album, great album. I don't care what anyone says, fight me. <laughs> so I can't be asked to tune my entire guitar down and do a setup on it just to play Rock Lobster. So I was like, well, I can get away just <laughs> tune these two strings. Uh, and then it just turns out to be an amazing tuning, which sounds really nice for doing oh, like wow. seven chords. So it's like oh, I have to oh, try a that. minor shape on a minor shape. Oh, that's a seven. Brilliant. I didn't know the B-52s had yeah. a drop C. <laughs> yeah. Or, or yeah. Oh, B-52s are wicked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there you go. Their first album, especially. No, you got to go a cosmic thing. Jake. Oh, cosmic things. No Rogers and Don was producing that one. That is a great like, album. The combo. Yeah. Speaking of guitar chat, I would really like to appreciate the choice of not going for the booming guitar solo in this song it is a huge mm. show of restraint like i've said i would just wouldn't be able to help myself instead they use the orchestra and the piano to articulate that space which is just pretty mature really for 19 year olds Get up in the lyrics is absolutely heart wrenching. What an amazing vocal delivery when he's just repeating all of the get ups. Yeah. It's almost like he's talking to himself in his kind of shut away state and he's screaming at himself to get up and to get out and actually just he's he's realizing it from almost from a third person point of view there's an amazing guitar tone in the arpeggio break where there's like a tremolo or vibrato happening when it all breaks down i mean personally i kind of feel like the song should finish at the end of the get-ups I think they do that kind of gallop, the bow, ba da 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 The song should finish there, and then when they reintroduce everything, that could be like 
later in the album as a bit of a reprise. That's a, that's exactly what I've got in my notes. It feels yeah. like it's wow. come to a natural conclusion. Yeah. Well, I th- I think yeah. Okay. I've never I've never even considered that part not being there. I guess for me, it's like the end of a movement in a classical piece, and then yeah. that that brings in the next one because I really like how all all of the yeah. uh, how the strings come in with the bup, 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 and uh, and the yeah all of that stuff because yeah, that's where the, it's the most spacey. Uh, not spacey in terms yeah, of space, so, yeah, in terms yeah, yeah. of so having space. Think of it more of like a classical yeah. piece of music rather than yeah. more conventional, conventional yeah. like alt rock. And 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 Almost when they played, crunch. yeah. And when they played this live, that it did extend out, and there was a guitar solo, but it wasn't a big shredding monster. It was it was more um, or kind of built, and it was mm. yeah a little bit more experimental, I suppose, because he doesn't really consider himself a particularly good guitarist or at least not in the same leagues as any guitar heroes of his like Jimmy Page or yeah or whatever David Gilmore yeah okay the thing i really like about this song is the ritardando at the end which is just winding the song down with the gradual slowing down mm. at the end i find that quite hypnotizing I'd also like to point out some really clever wordplay. Oh, yeah. Addict with no heroin, but it's heroin with an E. Yeah. He loved that line so much, he basically used it again in straight lines. Oh, did he? Yeah, and the first first verse... I've never picked that out. The first verse of straight lines, he says, a damsel with no heroin, spelled the same way. Oh, okay. So it's not a a play on words in that case, but it's, it's the same... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a callback, isn't it? Yeah, 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 I think, yeah, you might have thrown that in for the fans. Yeah, this piece is so ambitious. You've kind of got to get on board or just jump ship with this one. Like, as in, if you go out and buy the new Silverchair album and this is this is all that you've heard, you've either got to just kind of accept it for what it is or put that CD away and never listen to it again. Yeah. Um, if you're harking back for tomorrow the sounds of tomorrow and so on i would have liked to have heard the little tag like i say the reprise in what has been interpreted by this podcast host as a tip of the cap to none other than our lord and savior peter gabriel (laughs) each song has been assigned its own artistic photograph on the on the sleeve notes the liner notes so i'm not sure if you've seen them jake for instance oh you can't see through the reflection can you kind of see that one oh look there we go yes yeah, I could see. <laughs> so, Peter Gabriel famously commissioned paintings to be done to represent every track of his 1993 release "Us," which Jake has promised me unofficially that if we can get to 100 episodes, we'll be allowed we'll to talk about that one. To talk about that, that one Peter Gabriel album. That one, yeah. <laughs> this song's photo is of a string quintet of purely old white men performing for a group of what I can only really describe as ravers who appear to have been fairly poorly photoshopped onto the stage behind them. (laughs) Read into that what you will. (laughs) 
So, anthem for the year 2000. Allegedly written after Johns had a dream about headlining stadium show and the PA blew up, apparently. It is a youth revolt song, although there is nothing depressing about the cycle of this theme. Or sorry, there is something depressing about the cycle of this theme. We, we are the angry youth that are tired of being at the bottom of the ladder. We've had similar messages in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, and so on. It's just something that's always going on and on, and we're kind of not getting any change happening here. Daniel Johns has said that this song took him 30 seconds to write, which I kind of don't believe. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, given that it's like three minutes long. Speaking of Led Zeppelin, the drums are being struck with a John Bonham-esque power. Although the mix has them sounding a little bit flat, almost like Metallica circa 19, uh, sorry, circa 2003. They don't sound as bad as St. Anger. No, they don't sound as bad. They just sound a bit flat is all I'm saying. Like, And I know... When you spoke to Nick Lorne, Daniel, he talked about like recognizing his drum sound in mixes that he hadn't done, or yeah. so on. And and he and didn't mix this it's song. It's just yeah. that thing. Yeah, there's other songs on this album where the drums sound amazing, but for me, like just like the Tom Toms could be a little bit boomier for my own personal liking. No, well you've picked you've you've, you've picked it up because yeah he wasn't allowed to mix this song or at least they the record company supposedly told him that they need a hit for the first single and he wasn't known as producing or mixing hit singles so they went back to Kevin Shirley who'd produced Frog Stomp oh. to mix this particular song wow and he even talks about in the interview that I did with him he talks about how he had he had a lot more in it and he had a lot more stuff going on over the top and the guitar, even the guitar riff was slightly chopped up and yeah. So I, I don't know. Oh, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Have, have we got those mixes somewhere? Well, then he, he said they must exist, but I'm, I guess I'm not a, as much of a super fan of the alternative mixes to, to have found it. Yeah. Though I suspect there must be a version of it somewhere. I I agree with you. I'm I'm usually like if it's made the album, then it's made the album, and that's what they want us to mm. hear. But there are certain cases where, like this, where I would be interested to hear. Yeah, for sure. Nick Lorne's approach to the mix. I find it weird when albums have two producers. Mm. So as in, like a, the the track listing is split. Oh, I was just saying. Oh, this was the lead single, so they kind of wanted to come out of the gates with a with a definite hit. Yeah, I and I just I don't know. I mean. Funny you mentioned it, because I've, I've kind of this is very much epitomizes a lot of that alt rock pop ground pop grunge sound that was coming kind of like to its to its peak at that point and in the early two thousands I guess as well. Whereas the others, yeah. I guess the others, I don't get quite that that feel with them. Uh, I didn't realize yeah. they'd been mixed by someone else, so that's probably explains why. Yeah. To be honest with you. Yeah, was it? It was this one, and there's only one other that's that's mixed by Kevin Shirley. Is it all? It's also uh, is it Miss You Love, which is was also another single. Let me see. Yeah, Miss You. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. Which I I just find it a shame. I mean, like I say, you can have Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois producing together U2's hit records, and there is a sense of continuity there. But when you get a mix like this, 
it just kind of disrupts the listening for me. The opening riff is staunch, with the guitar and bass playing a chunky homophonic riff. There is a second guitar doing an inverted pedal note or drone as well, right yeah. on top of the whole mix, which sounds really cool. There's a textural breakdown just to drums and voice in the verses. We are the youth, we'll take your fascism away. We are the youth, apologize for another day. Kind of very, we will rock you in a way. Not necessarily the same beat, although we will come back to that later. I think that's on the final track. But just that idea of having drums and vocals is very, very early queen the second verse is a little more filled out with the drone guitar front and center as well as a fuzzy kind of bass sputtering away in the back i wish that was kind of a bit more forward in the mix yeah 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 that's it's one of one of my notes throughout pretty much every song on this fantastic bass sound <laughs> Oh, yeah. especially later in the album, like yeah. there's some songs towards the end where the bass is just wicked. There's a lot of backwards and reversed piano, which mm. acts as yeah. kind of a lead-in for new sections, which I kind of like. Oh, Jake, you'll like this as well. The ending is very living colour, cult of personality kind of radio broadcast. And the photo for this song depicts a dartboard with what I assume to be a school photograph in the middle. It's like you're throwing darts at your school photograph and that could definitely be a bit of a, a slam back at Daniel and the band being picked on at school. In which case, I really hope that it was their actual class photograph. Well, it says class of the year 2000 on the thing. You know who it probably is, mm. is the choir that's in the in the song. Oh, maybe, yeah, because there, yeah, there is a choir. And actually, that's that's all the notes I have. Daniel, did you have any notes for that one? Well, I just I just realised that I don't know what version of this album is was released in the UK because I actually, I just looked at the back of the thing and it yeah. does say that Anthem for the Year 2000 isn't the Kevin Shirley mix. It's just the, it's just Miss You Love. I don't know if that's wrong, but I do know that the American version was different. So maybe it was only the mix released internationally that has a different, uh, had the different mix. Otherwise, it's just not, because yes, Nick definitely talked about how he doesn't like the mix of it. But I think, yeah. so what does it say on yours? Does it say that it was, uh, is there a little asterisk next to the, the song title? I'm listening to it on Spotify, so I imagine mine will be the American version. I'm just trying to have a look. Not enough Spotify doesn't oh, yeah. tell you to... Except for The Year 2000 and Miss You Love, mixed by Kevin Caveman Shirley. There you go. So my, my copy bought, you know, 20 years ago, says <laughs> says 
produced, recorded, and mixed by Nick Lone, except Miss You Love, mixed by Kevin Caveman Shirley. So maybe the oh, okay. the version I'm f- most familiar with is is Ke- is Nick Lone's one. Okay, that's interesting. So I'm not sure what's on streaming, which I assume is probably the US mix, but that's, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to flag that just in, just in case someone else picked up <laughs> that I was probably listening no, to a different that's one. that's a really interesting point because like I say, I mean, I've been enamored for the last couple of years with Nick Lornay and especially, you know, if you're listening to Midnight Oil, Rob Hurst drumming is powerhouse and the drums oh, yeah. on those records sound incredible. And it was just a little disappointing to hear this one because it's not that he's playing the drums poorly. He's playing it with all the intent. Mm. It's just not coming through in that mix for me. And especially in this era, Ben Gillies was was a huge Bonham devotee and was yeah, yeah you, he would pound the drums like nobody else. Okay, well then let's crack on to Anna's song, Open Fire. And Jake, you've got a note to lead us off with this one because we talked about this we yesterday. We did talk about this yesterday. My, my yeah. initial reaction was like, oh, that sounds very much like uh, if if Pablo Honey Area Ragerhead had done a cover of Where Is My Mind. Interesting. And then, then, I, then I actually sat down and, and played, you know, worked it out. I was like, oh, it's because it's, it, it, to be frank, it's a very popular chord sequence. Yeah. What is it? It's uh, one six three. Yeah. Whereas you're right with the minor three, which is why it sounds like by the rage ahead thing comes in because whereas my mind is a major three chord, that's a minor three chord in this one, which would be the more traditional way of doing it. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. Point. Well, f- friends of the show, genius dot com states. guys, it's well known. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We we love you, genius dot com. It's well known that Daniel Johns battled with anorexia. This song is not necessarily an ode to anorexia, but a public and creative insight into his private battles with the sickness. I think it's actually quite brave of Johns to document this song, as anorexia is kind of widely misinterpreted to be associated with more of the female gender, especially in like supermodel culture and so on. And I believe Australia to be, and Daniel, you'll be able to confirm this, rather like New Zealand, a society where the manly man prevails a masculinity at all costs, zero vulnerability. Yeah, and like this song coming out was a big deal because it came with a Rolling Stone cover story where he talked about what the song was about and the struggles he'd been having. And, uh, you know, they got a lot of positive response you know, people writing letters saying, oh, I'm, I'm happy that someone said what I'm feeling, um, et cetera. Oh, that's actually really awesome to hear. I know mm. that he only spoke about it once to Rolling Stone and that was mm. the only interview he did about it. That's actually nice to hear because I was coming from a much more negative stance of it's it's just not like our society to be like that in New Zealand mm. and Australia and it's very much, you know, you'll you'll be cut down pretty quick as yeah. as weak and that compounds the pressure onto Johns, who had already felt like an outsider, and now in the eyes of the manly man, he's struggling with a bit of a girl's disease. Yeah. As a side note, I'm pleased to see male icons in both countries taking a stance now to normalise the stigma surrounding mental health. The stigma of mental health issues perceived as being weakness is something that 
kind of emotionally disabled me for a number of years. And again, it's that tall poppy syndrome and it's that kind of that over, over overly masculine society of New Zealand and Australia. And I, I wound up writing papers about this at university mm. uh, because I had a really tough time when I first got here fitting in because I was very manly, manly from New Zealand, yeah. going to cut down all the trees, lumberjack sort of thing. And it's not the way that it is over here. Everybody's a bit more in tune with themselves in the UK, it seems. That's good to hear. Yeah. I'll take your word for, for it. So. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Sorry, Jake has actually got a lumberjack shirt on and he is going to go and cut down some trees later. Yeah. 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 I just need to find my hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you have? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is this this song wasn't, uh, originally going to be on the album, it was it was sort of like they they packed up all the recording equipment. They were they were finishing their sessions. Sorry, they hadn't packed up the recording equipment. They'd packed up the drums and the and so th- that means all the basic tracks had been done. And they were having a discussion, and they were like, the manager and and Nicola and I were like, just so we're clear, do you have any extra songs that you haven't told us about? Because he he tended to do that, and he's like, oh well, I do have this song, and and he. You know, as Nicola and I said, oh, he just plays this song like it's the greatest song I've ever heard in my life, and he didn't even want it on the album. <laughs> so, and so, yeah, they were like, quick, set up the equipment again, and then it became, I guess, the second single. And it's sort of, if if you hadn't heard Emotion Sickness by uh, buying the album, you when you heard this yeah. song, you kind of went, oh, okay, this is something different, even though it is, you know, a power ballad um, that isn't necessarily all that different from maybe some of their earlier stuff, though the, the, I think the emotional directness sort of comes through a bit more than maybe what you'd be used to. Oh, absolutely. And it, it is, it's, a, it's a power ballad in appearance, but when you break down the music and like the modulations that they're going through to get from the verse to the chorus, it's, yeah. it's very clever and it's very, very advanced. Yeah, yeah, there's a key change um, but, between uh, every time it goes to the chorus. Yeah, so a, a good a good thing to throw in a good little anecdote there is uh, that's also happened to Peter Gabriel, our Lord and Saviour. <laughs> he was packing up for his sessions on So, and as they were all packing everything away, he went, oh, I've, I've just got this other idea. Can we try this out? And it turned out to be Sledgehammer. <laughs> Fun fact. So, as, as you might know, Daniel, I'm mad for Peter Gabriel so I'm learning yeah. I got a lot of those stories the the song is mostly metaphor or misdirection making the illness seem like a toxic relationship with a girlfriend or with a partner the doubling of the vocals with the distorted guitar cool i like that when it mm. comes in like it's like the pre-chorus he's doubling what he's singing on the guitar yeah there's a really curious key change of a semitone for the chorus we go from i think e flat to e major yep that's it which you know, traditionally speaking, doesn't really worked. make a yeah. lot of sense, but they make it work through the, the two chords leading in. Yeah. 
100%. The second verse has got an awesome drum pattern. Which is just creative. I'm a big fan of creative drums that aren't just mm. like there's a time and a place for for the Ringo Starr approach where it's it's just locking down that beat and holding that beat. But there's also I'm a big fan of people getting a bit lyrical with their drumming. Yeah. And I love the second verse here. But there's also a whirly spacey keyboard, which and- I believe is performed by Jim Magini from Midnight Oil. In my head. I was going to say, I hope you knew Wait. who it was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I say, I saw Midnight Oil in 2017 and I was stood right in front. I was like three rows back from the stage at the Hammersmith Odeon or was it now Hammersmith Apollo, Jake, I think. It's been Apollo for about 20 years. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I've been listening to a lot of Bruce Springsteen, okay? And it's the it's the Hammersmith Odeon when he played there, all right? Yeah, so I went to see Midnight All and I was standing right in front of Jim for the whole thing. This is pre um, when he, he busted up his knee or something on the tour and had to finish the rest of the tour sitting down Dave Grohl style. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay, uh, so it's it's awesome that he is a massive part of this record yeah. in creating kind of weird sounds and so on, but him and Nick Launay had formed quite the devilsome duo partnership through recording with Midnight Oil. Yeah, even a lot of the things that people assume are Paul Mack on this album, like the sort of spacey sounds on um, Anthem for the Year 2000, are actually Jim Magini. Yeah. With a key, yeah. you know, little keyboard. He's a bit of a sonic wizard, isn't he? Like, yeah, definitely. Creating all sorts of weird sounds for Midnight Oil and for, and for Silverchair. Yeah. I believe he's done a lot of work with Neil Finn as well. I don't know, but probably. That, that, that's probably yeah. right. Probably. The vocals in the bridge get all gravelly, and there's really clever wordplay of... Anna wrecks your life. Which, when when you say it fast, and when especially the way John's uh, sings it. It sounds like anorexia life. Yeah. Which is quite cool. Yeah, this, that's something that yeah, he started doing on this album is a lot of wordplay, which you, there was basically no metaphor or wordplay on the first two albums, and he made a, yeah. a dedicated effort to to try and write interesting lyrics, even when they're kind of a bit odd. They're still interesting to listen to rather than just uh, bland. Well, mm. absolutely, and that probably comes a lot from the poetry side of things. Yeah, exactly. He he had to be happy with the yeah. words for to make them into a song rather than the other way around. Yeah, which I've I've never really done. I've always started music first, and I guess it's whatever you're into and mm. whatever helps you. But I've always found I write music and lyrics separately, so I guess I I approach lyrics more from a poetry point of view. But it's it's always been music first for mm. me. In your no, I I, I do apologise, Daniel. I've I've clearly listened to some more <laughs> of your episode. In your Neon Ballroom episode, you mentioned the power chords with the added fourth. Yeah. The first song I ever wrote used those power chords, and even though I tried to model the song off Pantera's Cemetery Gates, 
Beautiful. Uh, which, uh, again, I'm a 12-year-old that's just been learning the guitar. You know, it was nothing <laughs> like That was Pantera one of the first songs I learned too. <laughs> <laughs> I had definitely learned Tomorrow by then and I'd clearly taken those chords with me. Mm. And I taught, after listening to your podcast, I started teaching a couple of my students how to play Tomorrow, which reminded me of those chords. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. So I've been, I've been using them a lot, yeah. The last two notes I have, some... More excellent uh, and subtle keyboard work done by Jim Magini in the outro. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And the photo for this song just depicts a skeletal torso with broken ribs. I think we all get that reference. Yeah, I think some of the imagery is a, is is fairly literal. <laughs> yeah, pretty on the nose. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the next song then is Spawn Again, which another one I thought Jake this might get might get your uh, your ears up a bit. One mm, because it's yeah. heavy, but two because it's to do with Spawn. I do do enjoy Spawn. Yeah. Do you know that it is from? It was it's from the soundtrack. Oh, I was, I was, yeah, yeah. Because I was listening to this, I, was, I know this from somewhere. And I, looked, yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to look it up. I know I wasn't supposed to do much looking this stuff up because you know trying to sell me this album. But um, yeah, I looked it up. I was like, it's in Spawn. I love Spawn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of John Leguizamo's finest work. Well, yeah. As the Violator. <laughs> love John Leguizamo. Yeah, uh, once again, no, I've kind of got a very different vibe from this one. And then, you know, because I was looking up this song anyway, I was like, oh, so it was it was written ages before uh, the rest of the album. Uh, so, so this is probably more indicative. Once again, I haven't listened to the earlier stuff because I wanted to go into this relatively blind. So I'm going to assume this is more in keeping with what they were doing previously. Well, and that's the thing because in the in the UK you wouldn't have been sorry you you Jake you might not have been as exposed to it as uh, you know we were because in the UK they didn't do much business or you know, the UK press at the time was sort of like unless you've been on Neighbours we don't care <laughs> <laughs> we've got our own Britpop thing going on here we yeah. don't want any let's not rule out yeah, Home and Away here yeah that's well, true. <laughs> I mean I do remember yeah. seeing like a few silver chair bits and bobs on like Krang and MTV2 and yeah. that sort of thing yeah I think um, it the Krang crowd kind of kept them alive a bit but mm, mainstream wise it wasn't really a happening thing no no one I was really hanging around with was listening to them much either. Yeah. But to be fair, this is at the height of like Britpop. Exactly. 90s Britpop. Yeah. yeah so all yeah, even anybody a, really cares about over here is Blur and Oasis. Yeah. And, 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 and even, American, even American bands weren't getting through. So a little Commonwealth, a band from the Commonwealth wasn't yeah. going to get much of a look Although, in. Although I, yeah. I feel like it probably did have a fair few, like stuff like this particular, in particular, uh, would have had a fairly... Big influence, like we had a bit of a like a almost hardcore punk resurgence, and this reminds me massively of bands like Gallows. So if this is the kind of stuff that they were doing previously, I could actually see that as having an influence on some of them. Uh, I'll say that this is quite a bit heavier than oh. previous stuff. Oh right, like it is the closest thing to sort of proper metal that they would have done. Though there's a couple of songs in the next album that are in drop B, and they're pretty heavy <laughs> as well. But this is um. <laughs> But this is probably the heaviest, especially at, at this time. And you also noted that it 
it it was very different from the rest of the album. And that's because this is the last time that the drummer Ben co-wrote on a Silverchair album. And this is his last writing credit. So um, he, and he wrote on guitar as well. So I'm not sure what the riff split was, but there's like a riff, there's a riff towards the end. That's like a Sepultura riff. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he, uh, and they were constantly in the first two albums being like referred to as Nirvana. And so they were being compared to Nirvana all the time. So Mm. that would probably give you an idea, Jake, of the first two albums to an extent. This was the last song recorded for, sorry, last song written for Silverchair by anyone other than John's. Did I get this right, Daniel, that basically the proviso for him coming back into the studio was that he was going to write all the music from now on? Yeah, it's and no one will tell the story kind of straight except possibly Nick, uh, Nick Lornay's. But, yeah, essentially, like, there was there was a a feeling or that there was a possibility that they were just going to break up because of all the troubles that Daniel was having. And, and Nick kind of, there's this story about Nick going and staying with Daniel at his parents' house and sort of coaxing him into maybe showing him some songs he'd been writing. Um, yeah. Uh, and saying, well, it's, it, this doesn't sound like Silverchair to me. Maybe it's a solo album. Maybe, maybe the band's going to break up and Nick's going, Nick showed him, um, the Kate Bush album that he worked on and showed him all. He, he, apparently he showed him uh, Dark Side of the Moon, which apparent, which Nick claims that Daniel had never heard and, um, and, and said, look, that you can do more with an album than yeah. maybe what you think. And then that kind of switched Daniel on to go, oh, maybe we can do this as a band. So yeah, this was, yeah. this was potentially not going to be a silver chair project. And, and when he did come back to the band um, and, and started to rehearse. He said, look, look guys, I'm going to write the music from now on, but I don't know how that meeting went down. <laughs> I can't imagine it would go down well. No. If I said that to you, Jake. Yeah. Well, seeing as, yeah. as the band you're in, we've kind of just hired you in to play the parts. It would go down very well at all. <laughs> yeah. And I remember in one of our uni bands, someone asking you to play something and you just looked them dead in the eye and went, no. <laughs> Well, if you Basically. want me to play what you've written, why don't you just play it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Okay. Uh, so, and like we've said, this was originally written for the Spawn soundtrack, which was a great concept of metal artists, contri- uh, sorry, collaborating with electronica artists. Yeah. Kind of creating this new kind of genre in a way. Oh, I've actually got that this is the second track mixed by Kevin Shirley, but that is incorrect because that's the next song. Yeah. This is heavily based around Diabolus in Musica, which yeah. <laughs> is the devil in music. Otherwise known as the tritone or flattened fifth, which a lot of metal music is based around. A yep. lot of uh, Black Sabbath, for instance, is based around that direct interval because historically when the Pope and the church were running music, if you played the tritone interval, then you were pretty much executed. <laughs> it was it was banned yeah. because it was it was believed that that was the note of the devil and that would <laughs> either make the devil appear or it was you worshipping the devil or so on. It's crazy. But anyway, that has since, because of that kind of uh, stigma, that has since become a huge feature of metal music. 
I don't have a lot of notes for this song really. So the the photo of this song is of a monkey pressed up against glass like in a laboratory. Well, had he recently gone vegan or something? Yeah, yeah, it's a hundred percent. He he this is a vegan this is basically a basically a vegan pamphlet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here <laughs> yeah. we go. Okay, so the next song is Miss You Love. I've got that it was... Oh, sorry, I have stolen this from you as well, Daniel. You <laughs> talked at the beginning of your podcast about uh, the metres of each song, and this was written in 6-8, and, I mean, it's really clear in 6-8. I've been looking for tracks that are in 6-8 and 3-4 and so on so I can play them for students because they they don't understand the concept of 6-8. Right. To, to anybody that's not involved in music and in composition this song just sounds like a normal song because i guess after every 12 beats it links up so it's all symmetrical and in almost in four four the song presents itself as a love song and it's a for me it's a clever teenage song if you will and i'm not writing it off although it's this kind of song where someone is withdrawn and not totally sure what love is we often think that love is a one-sided affair, as in my soulmate will love me and therefore I will be fine. Whereas the truth is that it's obviously more of a partnership, a relationship in the strictest definition, and a teenage boy particularly, we're sold on the idea that when you find it, you have it, therefore you don't need to work at it. This is kind of the... It's, I get the impression that he's in that state where he's beginning to realize that it's not quite as cut and dry as it is or he's he's delving in to find that out himself it strikes me that he's yet to open himself up to someone and say here i really am warts and all which is to be fair most of us when we're in teenagers and in our early 20s we kind of keep parts of ourselves hidden from others and then this sentiment is kind of realized and referenced by john's in the line Yeah. Although Daniel, I'm I'm sure you're going to completely shut me down there. Well, no, I mean my I, this isn't confirmed anyway, but my take on the song is that it's about his fans and that yeah. He you know appreciates what they do for him, but he doesn't want to have to give them what they want and doesn't yeah, he he like the fan base was very overwhelming in the early days of Silverchair. So he had he had yeah. it from both sides, people hating him. Uh, and then people loving him so much that, you know, he had stalkers and, you know, and he was living at his parents' house as a 16-year-old. Like, he, it was a lot to deal with from yeah. both both sides. I don't – that's never really been confirmed. That's just the way I, I read it. Um, he has said that the lyrics were written to be misinterpreted, so he wanted to make it sound like it was a pretty love song, but it's actually about yeah. being anti-love or, or not having love. Um, I don't think it's – yeah – yeah, I don't. I don't know how hidden he's tried to make make things, but it, it it's yeah, it's another kind of power ballad, I suppose. 
Almost, yeah. So I love the restraint shown by Ben upon the drums entering. The temptation is to do like a massive drum fill on all the toms and mm. make it absolutely crazy, but he just kind of doesn't. He does like a like a kind of brush across the cymbals sort of thing. I mean, when I was at uni, we had a metal drummer who we were doing a rendition of Alicia Keys's Fallen, and he did the most bombastic <laughs> kind of metal fill leading into <laughs> kind of thing. And the tutors were scolding him. I thought it was brilliant. Like it was brilliantly yeah. timed and it gave his own flair to it. But uh, I guess that wasn't the point of the lesson. Rather than that, Ben is actually rather delicate and kind of, he just emphasizes the meter of the song through his playing. Yeah. And then he gets to kind of branch out a bit in the, in the, in the bridge or in yeah, the, in the, exactly. mid, in the middle eight. Yeah. yeah. I enjoy the harmony based around the, I'm not, not sure. I think that's really excellent, the way that they're using the vocal harmony. I'm not, not sure, not too sure how it feels. Yeah. And the instrumental bridge is, is, again, just not a solo. It's just the band going for it. which is kind of, that's a, that's a lost art art form in my eyes. Yeah. Where we don't need to have the booming guitar solo. Just Let's just all play the chord changes together and really, really put it some energy It is kind of a guitar. I think that almost counts as a guitar solo for Daniel. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, that. Well, I don't know. No, no, I mean, I, I, he, to, he rips a good guitar it. solo on uh, tomorrow, and there's a there's another one coming up, and I can't remember which the track it is. I think it's the next song where he, re- yeah, oh, okay, where he really goes for it in there as well. The photo for this song depicts a church sign that reads, "Judge Christianity by Christ alone, nothing else." Ten a.m. Power of Glory. Five p.m. Depression. The uh, late and very, very great professor, Neil Peart, also liked to catalogue church signs across his writing, his travel writing books. One of his favourites was, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that those are all my notes. You got anything to add to that one, Daniel? Well, I think we, we can't uh, pass over this song without mentioning how great Jim Magini's keyboards are and they're really prominent yes. in the mix. Mm. And that was the, like, listening now, I really hear the, the guitars, but when this was, when I first heard this, I thought it was all keyboards. Like, it's, it, re- it really gives a nice different colour to the album. Yeah. That's actually something I really think this album does well, is every song sounds different from the next, and yet they seem, yeah. they seem cohesive. Mm. That's something we've talked about with other albums before. It's almost like a like a, a breath of fresh air, like taking a breath in, taking stock mm. after such a heavy track before. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, and that's something of a lost art as well. The album sequence. The, mm. Yeah, we this this flows quite this well many times. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. And 
not to bring it back to Peter Gabriel, but of course, Peter Gabriel, Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and so on. I've, I keep hearing stories of them with basically cassettes that they would have with the first 30 seconds and the final 30 seconds of a song on. So they would, they would just plug in the, put the cassette in, listen to it and then put the next cassette in to see what actually fit thematically, what fit in terms of like keys and so on. Like I've never thought of set lists in terms of keys. I've always gone on them from like an energetic point of view, but Again, Jake and I were in a band and one of the other guitarists was always creating set lists based off keys. Well, we've done this song and it's in G, so therefore we should move to this yeah. song because it's a fifth up and it's in D. Was that also because he had to change is, guitars if it was in different tunes? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, we didn't. We never changed guitars, actually, to be fair. We didn't change tuning. It was it was like a a white boy hip-hop funk mm. punk right, rock cool. band kind of thing. Probably why yeah. Peter Gabriel does it, though. God. <sighs> Maybe, but I I think you're right, Daniel. It is a bit of a lost art form. Like there are stories of of Bruce Springsteen spending like weeks trying to just get the set listing right, yeah. like, agonizing over it for weeks. And when you listen to one of his records, it's like it is a complete to to be very stereotypical and cliche. It is a journey mm. because he's agonized over that set list so that there are peaks and there are valleys. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well then the next song is Darius Helpless. The photo of this track is of a young lady hiking up her skirt to reveal her undergarments and between her legs is a series of neon lights. Read read into that what you will. This song seems to be about pushing away the ones you love in order to help them. Again, it's kind of a very misguided approach for me. This is very reminiscent of the things that I was kind of writing to try and be dark when I was 18, 19. It was that kind of, you know, I'm doing you a favor by by leaving you alone. You're better off on your own. Mm. I'm just that I'm just that kind to bring you down are the lyrics from the song. Mm. There are some really cool synth kind of cut-off things happening in the intro. With massive, huge drums. Really love the drums on this track. Yeah, it's really built on the Ben's toms. I love the riff of this song. I think the riff is like really, really quite creative. And oh, and I, I especially love the hits. The pattern the two three then two again there's some sort of like crazy flute action happening in the bridge And that's so as good. well. Yeah. 
It's. It, I think it's a sample because there's no woodwind players listed at, on the um on the liner notes. So it's either Lorne A just playing around or it's Jim Magini. Yeah, there's and yeah. that middle section's kind of crazy. It's like uh goes goes into six eight for that for yeah. that section. Yeah, it's it, it's really for like one of the standard rock songs on the album. It's still really creative, which I really like. Absolutely. And you've just you've just hit on my notes there almost word for word. I said I I think this is a flute like synth. Yeah. Because I can't see any personnel on the list with flute, so it must be Jim yeah. Magini doing some magic. Okay, I haven't I haven't got any any other notes for this one. Well, I'll just say that uh, even though I don't think Silverchair much sounded like Nirvana, and I think I might have said this in the in the in the episode, so I'm sorry about that if you've already listened. This is the closest thing I can think to a Nirvana riff. This sounds like something that might have been on In Utero. Mm. Yeah. 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 And and even the oh, the, Jake, the Jake's way Jake's man the, for In Utero, it, yeah. Yeah. Well, you've you've got the test pressings that Chris Novoselic said would never see the light of day and you've actually got them, right? I did. Yeah. yeah. Really? Bargain price of 50 pounds as well. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, they, yeah. they, it, it wasn't what I ordered. They re- they released it by mistake. There was a uh, oh okay. There's a pressing plant, I think, in Germany, and basically they got the wrong master. Uh, wow! And they did like this really limited run of them uh, for this pressing, and oh. obviously they didn't realise until people had already bought it, and I'd already bought it. So was this a rip? This <laughs> was like basically enough. the only difference is that the solo on all apologies sounds awful, and one of the other songs doesn't sound as good. Was this the reissue, or is this back in the day? So it was a reissue, but it's yeah. got the original Steve Albini mixes right, for okay. those songs because they, some yeah, of, yeah, yeah. not all of the album was mixed by Steve Albini. No, the I think records, the singles were happy with it. Similar um, to what happened with Silverchair, I think the yeah, yeah, the singles uh, ex- were made to be except re- the the bits that they got them to remix actually sound much much better after right. the fact. Yeah, uh, I can see why they wanted it redone. Yeah. Okay, well then the next track is Do You Feel the Same? The photo for this track is a opened copy <laughs> of the Kama Sutra. And in the gatefold it's directly opposite the um the lady with pulling her skirt up. <laughs> I don't well actually the C D booklet, I don't know if what it's like in the vinyl. Oh yeah, no, I've got the lady with the skirt up over Well if here, you can if you can see that the Kama Sutra up there. Oh, look at that. Yeah, there we go. I mean, this album was actually probably made for CDs, so that's probably more intentional. I'd say yes, but um, it was mixed on an analog system. So it was, they, they recorded, they, they made an effort to go, well, Nick, I think Nick insisted that they, they mix it over, overseas in LA where they could mix it on an analog um, Neve desk because oh, okay. because the whole idea was that this was like a, in a warmer sounding album. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it okay. should sound good for vinyl is what I'm saying, even oh, though yeah, it was absolutely. made for the CD era, yeah. The opening drum fill for this song is just so lethargic. I really love it. I, I just kind of, it's so sloppy but so precise at the same time. <laughs> the chorus is blown wide open with some big flanger chords and vocal harmonies they're, they're really getting into their stomp boxes here jake now I have many 
I find it an interesting choice to ride on the crash symbol during the chorus as opposed to the ride because it's not overly like a heavy rock chorus, but it does kind of work. I guess they've got the drums so far back in the mix that it doesn't affect it. And I mean, it does sound really good. I just, because it's so dreamy and so on, I kind of just suspect that I would have, I would have, I would have played it on the ride symbol as opposed to the crash. Yeah, I don't think I've noticed that. That's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's just, you know, yeah. I think Go rides maybe got too much body to it, like for that dreamy, dreamy sound. It doesn't sound like a big crash. It could be like a, a 10 or a 12 inch crash. And maybe they wanted you know, it to. to- that deadening, like the crash will mm. disappear more quickly than the ride will. Yeah. There is some excellent guitar tremolo chords. Yeah. And Jake, <laughs> you'll, you will know that I'm a big fan of the tremolo. Oh, yes. it's Yeah, but it also sounds like there's a bit of flanger on there too, or maybe there's two guitar parts going. I'm actually listening to it now. It sounds like a flanger, I would say. Yeah. It's probably a bit of both. Two guitars, though? Or is that on one guitar, flanger and tremolo? I would imagine that as... I'd imagine it would be two guitars, flanger yeah. and tremolo together might be a little bit... Yeah. Let me go back and listen. Um, well, I w- I'll just point out that apparently Daniel said this was him trying to write a Neil Young-type song because um, his... It, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think his dad... I've got that, especially for the solo, yeah. Yeah. So I think he's, like he was he's, doing that as a tribute to his dad or something. Well, I think his dad, he was showing his dad some of the new songs and he was like, you know what you need, mate, is a guitar solo. And he's like, all right, dad. And he wrote this song <laughs> that, so it would have a guitar solo. Um, because, and, Fair enough. As, and sort of, I don't, I'm not familiar enough. I'm not familiar enough with Neil Young to know if that's accurate at all. Um, at least in terms of how, uh, his songs of, of any era sound, but, um, that was, that was the story. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know enough about Neil Young's guitar playing. Like, I yeah. I can pick Neil Young's guitar playing if if I hear it out mm. of the, like out of the lineup, but I don't know it so idiosyncrasy, or I don't know the idiosyncrasies of his playing well enough. I mean, friend of the show, Papa Jake would would be all over that. Yeah, absolutely, he would. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. I'm just I'm just at that bit now. So I like to have the songs on in the background while we're talking about. Them. Um, yeah, you're you're a true. Gen Zer, I guess, multitasking. <laughs> hey, shut up! Come yeah, I think, from a man yeah. who would do all of his uni coursework while watching Breaking Bad, and yeah, well, you know, you know, and still be able to follow what was going on. Yeah, because you know, I just didn't like the crippling silence of doing uni work, man. <laughs> yeah, I was lonely. Okay, yeah, there is a guitar solo. spoken about it kind of being Neil Young influenced the bass tone throughout the guitar solo is pretty beefy 
it sounds yeah. like he's tuned down. Like the strings sound like they've got no tension in them at all. Are you at that point yet, Jake? Yeah, I don't know about no tension though, because it's still got quite a lot of like that bright pluckiness to it as well. I, I don't know about. It just they sound really loose though, don't they? Like, you know, no. It's got a little click to it. Yeah, so that it is like... in drop. Well, it's it's in standard tuning, but you know what? There's at least apparently there's four guitars in this. I've got I've got the sheet music here. Apparently there's oh, four. Oh wow! So there's at least four guitar tracks because three guitar tracks are in standard tuning and then there's a fourth guitar in drop d for some reason <laughs> it'll just sound heavier when you play the same chords yeah yeah and i will point out actually okay. that the the verses and the choruses are the same chord progression i think it's they're both a minor to f or at least a version okay. of cool which is kind of yeah, a cool yeah. a cool songwriting trick if you can make things sound different when you're using the same chords absolutely i think one of those guitars is acoustic as well Mm. Yeah. yeah 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 oh yeah oh yeah especially in the um especially in the bridge that goes to like a g mm. sus chord and it's a really bright acoustic guitar yeah now you've mentioned cool. neil young it's like yeah this is definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay you've got there good Then the next song is the Black Tangled Heart. The cover for this track is a lump of meat tangled in black twine. I don't, it doesn't look like a heart to me. Literally just looks like a chunk of meat. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm looking at it now. I think I've always yeah. thought it was a heart, but now you mention it, it doesn't really look like one. <laughs> no. I mean, it might be might be like a cow heart or something. This one was written in 3-4. Thanks, Daniel. I got that from the podcast. (laughs) The intro is really interesting. There's an electric guitar and a harp playing in unison. The harp was played by Jane Rosenson. I I could have sworn that it was a dobro listening to it because I know that Nick Hornay and uh, Jim Magini love to get the old Dobros out for Midnight Oil songs. And well, it I just think... didn't sound like a harp to me. But now that I've read that it is actually a harp, I guess. I thought, yeah. I thought well, it was I think the... a classical guitar. Oh, really? Mm. Well, they did have a string section there and there is, yeah, they. I think they might as well have, they probably thought maybe if they were just going to use a keyboard on it that they've got a harp there. Might as well use it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It embellishes it in a really cool the, way. The, the two timbres working together mm. with the electric guitar and the harp sound really, really nice. Strings play a huge part in this song. Take the world to my heart. Oh. Yeah. Making it sound, as Daniel Johns worded it, ugly. Mm. But ironically, due to the timbres of the strings, there's kind of like a sense of romance, even though the notes they're playing are dissonant and ugly. Mm. There's, uh, there is a certain sense of romance to them. Um, yeah. And we've got more creative drumming. Yeah. 
really, really, again, just lyrical. Really, really like that. There's some excellent piano work being displayed, this time care of Kiwi, Chris Abrahams. I'm beached ears! So after the second chorus, there is a complete moment of like anger. Daniel's voice turns to sandpaper. Yeah. And everyone is turned into like this homorhythmic pattern. that I've inappropriately named the Black Tangled Heart bipolar clip <laughs> because all of a sudden it's gone from being quite nice to just complete furiosity. The vocals in this song are, again, pretty incredible. Daniel is singing his lungs out. interesting there's a really good live version of this they have a live album but i don't it's not on it's not on streaming because it was released as a double dvd double cd and the the live version of of this song is is one of my favorites it, it made me love the song more on the album um from hearing it live oh really it's a really if you can find is, it on that's not the the if you find is that if, the best of both worlds no, no. There's a. It's called Live. The Great from, Divide Tour. No, that no. That's uh. That's the. That's 2007. So I don't even know if they played that. Oh, okay. It's called Live from Faraway Stables. It was. It was on the Diorama tour. It's. It, there will be clips of it online. Uh, YouTube should have. Should have it. But yeah, it's um. It's a really powerful performance of and the final chorus. He oh, sings. Yeah. He changes the melody. I remember. Uh, I remember f- that um the album cover from JB Hi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'd see that album cover all the time. But yeah, this is it one might of my. It's available this, over here. It'll, it'll be available, just not on streaming. I reckon it, you could probably find a physical copy. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah at least, at least yeah. it's not. Uh, I'm actually, I'm not sure. It might be in in other countries, but it's just not the on the Australian um, streaming sites. But anyway, that's boring. Uh, this is this is one of my favorite songs on the album <laughs> on the on the album now. In fact, I think the second half of this album is is has three of three of my favorites, and this is one of them. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a pretty awesome track. It's the strings that make it for me. Yeah. Usually I'm not, I mean, I used to be, and we've talked about this before, I used to be a huge fan of like the wall of sound. Let's make everything sound really thick and lush and Mm. all of that kind of thing. Beatles, let it be. But now since going to uni and kind of delving into music a bit more, I kind of, I'm pretty anti that. I'm more about the live recording yeah. Play what you can yeah. play sort of thing. But this, mm. I mean, this song without the strings, I can't imagine it being anywhere near as good. Yeah, I think, well, and, and I think that's another, uh, what, like what I was talking about before is that he knew that he wanted other other instruments. So he wasn't trying to embellish his guitar parts necessarily. Some songs he does, yeah. but on a yeah. song like this, yeah, he's like, no, I know that there's going to be strings. So I'm going to sit back, be part of an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, again, that's just incredible, incredible maturity. Yeah. 
Okay, point of view. The photo for this song is what I think. I think it's Chris looking in a yeah. mirror with a gun barrel sticking out of his mouth. Yeah, I've never understood okay, not, what this is meant to me. Not like he's going to commit suicide, Jake. It's not like the sticking into the mouth. It's actually the the tip Poking of the out. barrel is coming out. Very strange. Like the, yeah. like the alien from Alien, but instead of a second yeah. jaw, like he swallowed a gun. A gun? And it's... <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 That be more frightening. Is that kind like of what, what was that? Like that a gun um, of a second jaw. <laughs> was it Tarantino? Or was it Robert Rodriguez? Where people are getting like guns put on their arms and stuff like that. Yeah, it was yeah. Rodriguez. That was um, Planet yeah. Terror. Oh, what was it called? It was that really shitty zombie film with Bruce Willis in Planet, it. Um, Planet Terror. Planet Terror. Thank you. Yeah. Planet Terror. There yeah. you go. So yeah, he's replaced I, I his a tongue with a I with a gun. It. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's that good kind of shitty film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Johns has previously stated that this was one of his favourites as it's a straight-ahead rock song. There is some pretty crazy chorus phaser on the guitar, which I, which I really like. I'm a big fan of phasers as well. This song, to me, I can't hear it without thinking of Incubus. Remember all that she can say Wow. Mm. Is yeah. that because of the no, phasing guitar? I'm a big guitar? fan of Incubus. Oh, okay. Is that because of the phasing uh, guitar? I think it's the phase guitar. I, there's even a point in like, I want to say it's like the pre-chorus where Daniel's voice even actually kind of morphs into Brandon Boyd. It actually sounds a lot like Incubus. Just, just for this uh, brief moment where the drums stop and it's just the guitar and the voice. Yeah. Then when and- they go back into that kind of chordy riff, well, I'll tell you, they they both just, yeah just, they're both on PRS guitars. Oh yeah, both album. There there was make your make yourself by I'm Incubus think, yeah. was released the same year as this one. Yeah, but I'm actually thinking this reminds me more of Morning View Incubus, which came out later. So maybe yeah, Incubus right. copied Silverchair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's an interesting point. I've never wouldn't have ever considered that comparison but yeah I like this is one of my favorites as well yeah. and yeah I guess it is kind of like a straight ahead rock song but I don't know there's something a lot of the songs in this album they kind of build to a particular moment in the in the in like the interlude or the middle eight and it, it really yeah. it's something he does really Daniel does really well in his songwriting is that he kind of builds the song to a point and this is a example a very good example of that yeah. where it's got the he says that weird line about pretend the stakes a cowboy and the kiss will kill you, and then yeah. and then and then, <laughs> yeah. and then that ri- yeah. the riff comes in slowly, and then yeah. The only other note that I have for this one is that coming out of the bridge, there's some kind of awesome Beatles esque reverse guitar with quite an immense drum fill. Yeah, there's a lot of Nick Launay and Jim Magini messing around in, in that section. Yeah. Well, it's written in uh, A-flat sus 2 tuning. It's actually the <laughs> – and it's the only song – I think it's the only song ever written in that – or at least the only Silverchair song. Because <laughs> I And to, to in order to put my episodes together, I always try and play the song like just for myself. Um, and tuning yeah. for this was a nightmare because it wouldn't stay in tune. And it's, not, it's an open – a yeah. flat sus two. Open a sus two. 
So that so that when you play that 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 riff, the riff, it's on one string, and then the rest of the the open strings are playing a chord. It's actually really clever, but it's that makes a nightmare. Sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What what are you playing on mostly? On my <laughs> on my very metal purple Ibanez S. <laughs> nice. Which doesn't, uh, it's got a Floyd Rose, but it doesn't stay in tune very well. It's, I haven't changed the strings in a million years. <laughs> well, floating, floating bridges never stay in tune. I've got a Bigsby on one of mine and it just. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I've always wanted a Bigsby since I saw the Rolling Stones and they had the big three five fives with the Bigsby. And I was like, yeah, I want me some of that. <laughs> and then I got the Bigsby and it's like, oh, maybe that wasn't the greatest choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Make it. Okay, then the next song is Satin Sheets. Jake, you may be able to guess this one. The picture for this song is of... Is it Satin Sheets? Satin Sheets. It, it is, but it's, isn't it Satin Sheets Underwater? Actually, I could be wrong. It, it always looked to me like there's, there, there's a, like a, a forest or something just above at the top, but I could oh, be wrong. Yeah. I could be wrong about what that's meant to be. It's the most vague, anyway. Well, well also being the most literal. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that could be like satin sheets submerged, submerged because in water. I because I think the song's meant to be against the 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 materialism of satin sheets, and so it's being drowned. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I quite like that. Theoretically, that, that all of a sudden makes us so much better. Yeah, because I was I was a bit disappointed that all the other ones have got like these hidden meanings in them. And then there's just a picture of satin sheets. Yeah. This is a hangover, I believe, from their previous album with Nick Launay, Freak Show. Is that it correct? Might, it might well have been. I don't I don't think it is, but it could be. It, it's definitely in that same punk, sl- like that in, the, in that era, in the kind of the previous album, Freak mm. Show. Yeah. They were kind of a little bit, they had a little bit of that punk feel to them. And this, this is a, a song that basically, yeah, it's very similar to a song from the previous album, but I think there yeah, they've tried, they've put a lot of electronic elements on it from Paul Mac to keep it from being oh, too generic. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. There's some really fun panning of like guitar feedback at the beginning. Going yeah. between your left ear to your right ear, back to your left ear. And, uh, you have to forgive me for this one, Daniel. This is a bit of a cheap shot. <laughs> it's really great that they've managed to get Chewbacca to provide some vocals too. Yeah. <laughs> if you listen, once once they start going, all of a sudden there's just in the background this kind of like, Oh, so you're not talking about the, in the final chorus where he goes off with the with the crazy vocals? No, no, no. I, I will get to that. I'm I'm literally. It sounds like someone's intro. doing a Chewbacca impression oh, right. in the intro. I, yeah, I think right, it's okay, actually yeah. like some feedback. Yeah, it's probably feedback. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like him. Yeah, um, I'd prefer to think that it's Nick Lorne in the background doing a Chewbacca impression, but that's okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> According to friends of the show genius.com, Daniel describes this song as the most energetic song when we recorded it. We want well, we just wanted to make it sound really messy and live, angry and yeah. We did just that and Paul Mac added some subsonic booms so it's not so generic because we wanted it to be really straightforward punk just with something a little different in there because a lot of the punk community don't like to hear things different. So I just I just love the little jabs and stabs that they take. Yeah, musically especially speaking, when I don't think anybody considered them part of the punk movement, but it it was kind of that. Yeah, I'm not really sure. <laughs> like I like this yeah. song, but the album works without it. Um, it's just another color, I suppose. In the I, yeah, I, um, I kind of feel like something like this as well. You mentioned before a lot of people like to compare them to Nirvana. I think like that opening riff sort of doesn't help. It is very, yeah. very. It's not the yeah. same as as uh, like breed, but it's quite similar. It's sounding. sort of the same sort of wrong, energy just, as it's well. It's generic, like you were saying. It's it's that's a punk thing. Like that's just punk. Yeah, it's, like it's, Daniel Johns was into you know the Ramones like, and Minor Threat and all these yeah, all these exactly. other punk bands. Like if you actually like say I've said breed. If you were to listen to them back to back, they don't actually sound the same at no. all. It's immediately the like feel. into that mindset of like that, right? Yep. It well, feels that again, spot as, on the album. As we know, Jake, you can actually copyright this, the like energy well, you of a song just now. follow <laughs> copyright the general feel of a song, yes, as we've learned from our good friends, the Marvin Gaye estate. So, exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, Marvin Gaye actually wrote all music ever and they're entitled to a slice of everything that's ever been written. Yeah. Just wait till they start copywriting the scales. Anything that's ever used a chord that Marvin Gaye might have potentially thought about using, they they should get some money for. Obviously, have, have, you, have you do you know Adam Neely on YouTube? He's oh, done yeah. a, he's done some great oh, videos yes, on that. Into that. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of what got me onto it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There is a really interesting halftime break during yeah, the yeah. bridge in this song. I'm always a mm. fan of unintentional halftime. And then my final note here is that to make Riders on the Storm that little bit more spooky, Jim Morrison added a whisper track to the vocals. Silverchair have opted just for a full-on scream uh, track at the end. And what I want to say is like a kazoo in the background as well. There might be. Yeah, but I, I'll I'll say that this I think this uh, song earns its place because Daniel never sang like that before or since at the the yeah. way that he does in that final chorus, and it's really a cathartic thing on an album that's about or it's it's so much about restrained emotion and then explosion. So yeah, yeah, I think it earns its place because of that because. He actually sings very differently on every other album, and I don't know if that was the, his state of mind, the songs, or Nick Lorne's uh, production. But yeah, he it's it's a very more it's a more direct way of singing, um, and it's there's also not that many 
vocal tracks. And I actually asked Nick about that. And I said, by the next album, there's, he, you know, he's building up five, six, seven, eight tracks of his voice to, to, to harmonize with. But on this, Nick kept him really, really direct. And you get, you get one or two tracks and then a harmony. So that, yeah. And I think that really works, at least for this album. My, my favorite album is Diorama, which is the next album, but it has a completely mm. different approach vocally. And that was, that was the album that I thought you were going to pick for us to do. Well, it's a bit I of a was, deep... I was, just I, had I, a feeling. Yeah, well, only because well, you originally suggested Frog Stomp to me and I thought, well, yeah. that, if I'm going to have to win over Jake or... So I don't know if that's the actual uh, dynamic here, but but if I was going to have to win people over, I don't know if I can defend Frog Stomp in the same way that this is the album that kind of set them on the path that they continued on. Yeah. And it's, and it's a good mix of what they kind of, what they used to sound like and where they would go. So that's why I picked yeah. this album. Okay. Well, then let's shift on. We've got the last two songs here, and then we move into our final few questions. Paint Pastel Princess, great alliteration in the title. Yeah. The photo for this track is Ben the drummer <laughs> looking in a cracked mirror applying lipstick. Again, Jake, read into that what you will. This is the fourth and final single released for the record, allegedly, according to Wikipedia, but it never actually charted. No, I, and I don't, I might've only been a fan club single in, in that they printed it and released it for the fans. But uh, yeah, I don't remember yeah. ever hearing it on the radio. They didn't make a video clip for it. They made a video clip for, um, for emotion sickness. And that wasn't an, an album that, that wasn't a, a single no. either. That was just on the, if you put your CD into the, into a computer back then it would play the, the emotion sickness video. Oh, one of those. Cool. Yeah. It's quite a manic guitar riff to start this song. And I believe this is one where he's just playing like clean arpeggios, but it's so yeah. quick. Oh, it's amazing. They're beautiful. And the strings take on another defining role in this piece. And then the last, last note that I have is that there's another excellent bridge with a great drum part and guitar tone. And the strings start to imitate the famous kind of stabbing scene from Psycho. Yeah. So this this is probably my one or two favorite songs. So this and and point of view, yeah. This song again really uses that string section uh, with the arrangement written on guitar to yeah. the, the the to its utmost kind of thing. It knew that there was going to be strings and and like the the strings actually bring in that the, that main riff for the I guess it's not even really a chorus, but the it's all the same to me part. You know, the strings yeah. bring that in yeah. before the guitar comes in with it. It's, it's, yeah, really smart songwriting. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's inseparable, okay. yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
Well, I've got no more notes for that one. So then we'll move on to Steam Will Rise, the final song. The photo of this track is Daniel trapped in a pill bottle. So again, I mean, that's that's fairly literal. The first thing that you are hit with is the drum and bass groove. And have I heard that or some of that drum pattern before, Jake? I don't know. We will rock you, maybe. I was thinking more Faith No More. Oh, especially if that bass yeah. sound. Yeah, that's well, a good uh, shout. Yeah, and, that's and a even, really good shout. And even because it's all tom based. Yeah, that's mm. that's a good point. Yeah. Speaking of, I've looked. I've looked at your top, your current top tens, and you've both got the the number one correct. <laughs> <laughs> As Angel Dust. <laughs> well. Yeah, and at least until we uh, we finish this album, right? So if we don't put this no, one well, at number if, one, if you have to maybe it's not it, correct anymore. Yeah. yeah, no, Angel Dust is one of my favourites as well, so all good there. Uh, we we bonded over that for, for many a year. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I got to see them in 2014, and again, that was another religious, pun yeah. intended, because they were actually all in like priest outfits, Yeah, but it was another religious experience of... Just standing there and just being completely blown away. I was meant to see them in June. <laughs> Say it again. I was meant to see them this June or last June. <laughs> oh yeah, because they they were going to New Zealand as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you might been... you might get to see Midnight Oil though. To be fair, they just released yeah, a new album. They did on Friday. No, theoretically, yeah. the Faith No More concert's been postponed to March, but who knows by March? <laughs> yeah, that's the same. I'm supposed to see Genesis yeah. Yeah. this month now. Yeah. On their on their big Reformation tour, but that's not going ahead. Mm. So supposedly April. Fingers crossed. I'm not sure if Phil Collins can last till April. <laughs> yeah, he's he's looking pretty frail at the moment. Mm. We're getting our sting numbers back up here. This is great. <laughs> okay, so steam will rise. The bass tone is so punchy. Yeah, really like the bass tone in this song. And when the guitar eventually enters, it's quite dissonant. Quite. Well, I use the word haunting quite a lot in this song. Really like the guitar. Yeah, this this is really the the rhythm section's time to shine. Like, yeah, people forget. I think the secret of Silverchair is that they were a really good sort of trio. And um, yeah, songs yeah. like this kind of show you that that it's really based on on that rhythm section. And then and in the next album especially the rhythm section really has to be there because there's not as many guitars or the guitars aren't as prominent. So you really get that sense that yeah, they're the backbone of everything. Yeah. The breathy vocals in the chorus, I can't help but feel that's to represent the steam. Oh. I quite like it. I yeah. quite like it. And then just drum solo. Yeah, it's a good drum solo. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I like I say. I mean, I was I was pretty critical of him in Anthem of the Year two thousand, or not necessarily him, but the drum sound. But on this track, the drums and his playing is just flawless. 
really, really good. And he's growing up, he's not one of those drummers that I've ever really kind of heard looking at drum magazines and drum forums and so on. But I think he's a bit underrated, really. Yeah. And he was, you know, 19 when this, yeah, when exactly. He was when this album came out, he was 18 when they recorded it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just incredible. I'll just say that that harmonized ending is probably is, is one of the only times on the album that you hear like a full amount of uh, vocal harmony and it's, and then there's yeah. sort of that, yeah, it's really haunt. You keep using the word, but it really works. The, the haunting ending. Yeah. And then you hear, you hear like a dog barking, which is Daniel's dog, whose name was Sweep barking. And then, and then there's He's the, actually credited in the, yeah. in the personnel, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. And then there's like a, <laughs> there's this, yeah, actually during that, during that drum solo with all the, well, the, the fills, the drum fills, there's yeah. like a, there's like a chiming bell that's like been sped up. So it's got this really eerie spinning sound to it, which is obviously a, a Nick Lornay thing that, that he, he put in there. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a really good way to end the album and, and it sort of leaves it on a, a somber note, I suppose, or at least a haunting note <laughs> to use that word yeah. one more time. I, I like that you pick out Nick Lornay's production on the, the bells. Like that reminds me of at the end of the drum, drum solo in the power of the passion, there's just like a, a chandelier or a light that's mm. dropped from the top of the ladder. So all of a sudden you just hear this kind of really short yeah. of the breaking glass. Actually just something that he, and he decided to do. The drum, yeah, the drums in this song actually are, are, are very Rob Hurst, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And again, he's another drummer that I just don't think gets enough credit worldwide. Yeah. that I mean, that man, he's, he's in his 60s and he does not leave any energy. Like It is all yeah. left on the stage. It's incredible, Jake. Like, you, he comes out, he's got, he wears like dress shirts with the sleeves cut off. It's very kind of... <laughs> Well, I assume to be very outback, but he wears basically just a like a like a, a dress shirt with the sleeves cut off, and then by about four songs in, that shirt's starting to get shiny because he's just basically yeah. sweat through the whole thing. Oh man! Well, we've reached that part of the show, chaps. We've reached that part of the show where we're in the final quarter, and we've got some questions to go through. We'll start with Jake. Mm. What's your favorite track off this album, Jake? My favourite track, probably Dearest Helpless. Wow, interesting. Okay. Mm. Uh, and Daniel? Yeah, so I, I historically it's been Paint Pastel Princess uh, for 20 years and then only recently I've gone Point of View is a, is a close second, but I'll say Paint, Past- pa- Paint Pastel Princess. <laughs> okay, I, I couldn't actually decide. I really like Steam Will Rise and I also really like Anna's song. Yeah. I think there's there's something really magic about the chorus in Anna's song that just completely transports me, you know, to that kind of late 90s Dawson's Creek kind of pop song. <laughs> it really in a, in a positive is, way. I mean, I, I feel really bad saying that, but it really does, and it takes me right back into my childhood, you know. Okay, so then we also ask potential covers. Who would do a really good cover of one of these songs? Jake. Uh, well, obviously, off the back of their not quite so recent amazing cover, Puddle of Mud, doing Anna's song. Oh, God. <laughs> wow. Okay. No, no. Um, actually, I, I mentioned them earlier. I'd, I'd like to hear like Gallows or someone like that doing Spawn. Yeah, nice. 
Daniel, do you have any inklings? Uh, well, so there was a uh, a covers album that is on Spotify, I believe. It's called it's called Spawn Again, um, and it's current Australian bands covering it. I don't think much of it. I don't think anyone the 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 best of them didn't do much to the songs, and the worst of them destroyed the songs. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I I wouldn't. It you know what? There's there's a good cover of I'm, I'm using one that exists, but maybe that's maybe that's not allowed. But there's a good cover of "Miss You Love" by Amy Shark, who's an Australian. I guess she's a pop singer, but sort of an indie pop kind of thing. That's worth okay. looking. That's worth looking up. Yeah, I don't know. Like this is the thing. I I, I think you've, you've asked me before to think about a, a cover uh, who would be good to cover these songs, and not yeah. It's I think they're deceptively difficult songs to pull off. Actually, I, I agree with that. You, yeah. you go, Jake. I, I did have one other one other thought for for covers. Actually, um, do you, if you remember a band called My Vitriol, no, uh, they were kind of semi-ish big back in early two thousands, two thousand one. They would be, I think, there to do a, a potentially a really. I think they could do a really good job of doing emotion sickness. Uh, yeah, well, wow. because if you listen to it, it just sounds very much like what they were putting out at that time yeah. as well. You know what? I, I, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give a shout out to a UK band who just released an album. Who I don't think I don't know what they would do with it, but Bring Me the Horizon have been doing some interesting things lately, and I reckon just give them any of the songs, see what they can do with it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I got to go with a bit of a cop out answer that I reckon Incubus would do a really great version of Point of View. Yeah, but I also I also think Good Charlotte would have a really good go at some of these songs, and especially in the like the third album era of Good Charlotte, mm. where they also started to bring in the strings. And Billy talked about that on your yeah. podcast, Daniel. You know, I think they would do a really good version of Emotion Sickness or in Steam Will Rise. Yeah, I was just gonna say they they've done a cover of Cemetery. Oh, there we go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wasn't that that was just like acoustic? Him and Benji. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jake, here we go. Does Neon Ballroom by Silverchair rank in your top ten? And let's pause pause for effect uh. because I can see Daniel's nervous. <laughs> Where does it rank in the top ten? Neon Ballroom by Silverchair, nineteen ninety nine. I am going to put that in. That's a good sign. <laughs> it's a good sign. <laughs> I'm going to put it in. Uh, for me, that is number four. Oh, that's pretty oh. good. So that's um, that's brilliant. It brilliant. knocks um, down a spot for number five. Wow! Doesn't knock D- Devo down because I fucking love Devo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, think I knocked Devo out last week. I know you did. I was yeah. very upset with you. Yeah. Internally, you know, um, internally, it's the same thing at the time. <laughs> okay. But yeah, yeah. I'm just waiting for you to, for us to do an album that you love, and I'm going to. To absolutely slander it and, uh, <laughs> and and just slate it and well to be fair i mean i think heard. devo was at once ranked second but that's mainly because that was the second episode i we think ever it's because it's the second episode <laughs> yeah. <we did. laughs> i i love that album man i've, I've got it i absolutely I love that album was, i for this album i'm going to be placing this at number eight Ooh. which forces hi ho <laughs> by blake mills out and puts Ella and Louie on the bubble of elimination. I think this is this is a growing album. This is an album that's going to really grow on me the more I listen to it. 
and I haven't even, despite putting all of this effort in and doing the notes <laughs> and stuff, I haven't had time to actually just sit there and let it wash over me yet. Yeah, I've had 20 years to do it. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, it, it is a really good album. It's produced brilliantly. It sounds brilliant. Like everything about this ticks the box. I think I just need a bit more time to sit there mm. and let it really kind of grow yeah. on me. So, Jake, I mean, this leads us into the final question for you then. Is Neon Ballroom from 1999 by Australian artist Silverchair a sound purchase? It is a sound purchase. I would have to agree. I mean, I went out and purchased it. Yeah. You did. Yeah, you've this, proven this it. This was the day that I went out and I saw Justified for oh, £14 yeah. pounds and I left that there because I bought this one instead. <laughs> we, we did Justified last week and we, we were yeah. really hyped for it because obviously you hear the singles and, oh, that's really good, yeah. And then the <laughs> album itself is... Are you talking so about much, Justin yeah. Timberlake justified? Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. There's, the there's no, no stone left unturned with Sound Purchase <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm glad yeah, to hear singles it. singles are great, but the, the album itself is just full of um, filler white boy yeah. song music. Right. And, it's just... and we, would like to, uh, we would like to just emphasize that we do really like Justin Timberlake. And... Even though we slagged him off big time last week, we do really like him as an artist. I'm sure so. you covered in the in your episode that it was supposedly written for Michael Jackson. Oh, Rocky uh, yes. Rocky Body, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, still yeah, one of the yeah, best quite pop a few songs, songs ever written. Yeah, we covered yeah. we covered. Did Rocky you know uh, Toxic by Britney Spears was originally written for Kylie? Wow, I didn't know yeah. that. No. You're saying you covered Rock Your Body on I was in a, I was in a I was in a Mr. Bungle esque band <laughs> called called Go Go Action Bears and we uh we did sort of ironic covers and one of them though though in like seriously, in the same way that Faith No More will do a, a serious cover, but they're doing it almost jokingly. But we did like mm. the Justified album at the time. So yeah, we covered um Rock Your Body. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay, well look, Daniel, it's been Awesome to chat to you. I've been hearing you in my ears for a number of weeks now since you got in touch <laughs> with your podcast. And well, you've won me over on Silver Chair. Like I say, previously I was very much just singles oriented. I know the greatest view, I know tomorrow and so on. But now I'm actually listening to full on albums and really beginning to appreciate the madness. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah. You can hear Daniel on his podcast, Too Much of Not Enough, the Silverchair podcast that's available pretty much everywhere where you get your podcasts. They are wickedly informative. They go on massive deep dives, so much so that you're having to take a couple of weeks off, right, Daniel? Yeah. Well, my partner is expecting our second child uh, any well, any week now, anyway, and yeah, there's. Uh, I'm still working on the next couple of episodes, so I'm. Uh, I've, I've given myself a little bit of a buffer, so uh, I'll be back soon, soon enough. Yeah, before the end of the year, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> oh, congratulations! Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Like I say, go in and check out Daniel's work because it is really informative. He's got awesome guests on his podcast. He's making this podcast host quite jealous, actually, <laughs> and. Well, I've learned a lot throughout this episode about how to run an effective podcast and how to get <laughs> friends and how to get people to actually come and talk to us on the podcast, which is quite helpful. 
So thank you very much, Daniel. It's been awesome chatting to you. No worries. I was happy to happy to come in, on. In many ways, you know, it's always nice to hear the accent. You know, they, <laughs> yep. I know that we shouldn't say that New Zealand and Australian accents are similar, but in the grand scheme of things, they kind of are, and it's it's almost like being home. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I really like your podcast too. Like, I uh, I hope to uh, catch up on. Yeah, I know you just dropped an episode today that I haven't been able to <laughs> to oh, get to. But um, oh, that's, that's yeah, so long. Uh, yeah. Well, I had to duck out halfway through. <laughs> norm- normally, we record these, and uh, this has actually been a bit longer than what we'd normally do. This normally, has been quite it's long about. Yeah, sorry about yeah. that. Normally, it's about hour and a half sort of thing. Uh, yeah. So I allowed an hour and a half. Hour and a half came and went. We hadn't even started talking about the album. And I was getting to, I was like, I've got to go. I've got to, I've got to yeah. rehearsal for a live stream. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure so, you can cut this down to, uh, a, to a manageable It was a good episode, length. but you've, yeah, you've got to set like two hours aside to listen to it. Right. Uh, which is a huge ask. But it's a great album, actually, the Tokyo Police Club. And Graham was really cool to talk to us. So, yeah, I think that will be us, chaps. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Okay, I am Stefan and this was A Sound Purchase. A podcast that does a deep dive to explore iconic recordings. We would like to take a moment and thank Daniel Hedger for joining us, sharing his wealth of knowledge. You can listen to more of Daniel's work on Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast available at all the podcasting platforms it's seriously good i've gone through all of it within a couple of weeks i just got addicted to it this episode was loyally labored over by producer paul lochran you can show your appreciation for the episode by liking sharing commenting and subscribing each engagement makes this effort all the more worthwhile and the best way to grow this podcast is by word of mouth Your support is greatly appreciated. Check the show notes and up-to-date top tens list and other musings at asoundpurchase.com. You can engage with us on social media under the handle soundpurchasepod. You can support us by purchasing a soundpurchase t-shirt, mug, stickers or even a tapestry by going to asoundpurchase.com and clicking on the merch store. Other episodes of A Sound Purchase are available at all of your favourite podcast platforms. If you've enjoyed the sounds during today's episode, visit your local record store to pick up a copy of Silverchair's 1999 release, Neon Ballroom. Support local businesses and artists.